0: The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. This, out. this is going to be crazy.
1: This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm David Kosher. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. Today, this is Ryan Park. I'm this is Ivan Davies from my family. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Feet This is Tate Fletcher, cage
0: fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show, where I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big
1: questions.
0: Oh man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on
1: the mark. That's a, another really good question. It was great talking to some clever dudes. I've gone probably a little bit more in depth with you than uh, that I have in the book. I've
2: done like 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow.
0: And sometimes we talk about darts.
2: There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favorite sport is darts. How athletic is that?
1: I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favorite, but I won't be judgmental. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's the only
2: sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest.
0: The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously.
2: So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go. Uh,
0: friend. Okay. <laughs> but we hope you will. I got my move to working but it just won't work on you. Hey everybody,
3: good to have you on board the big red bus that we call the Mojo Radio Show. As always, we're on the lookout for great people from anywhere in the world, those that we think have their mojo working in some aspect of their world. And we talk to them, we find out what they do, how they do it, so that we can apply it to our own world to get our own mojo working, or perhaps share with a friend who's just feeling out of their lane. Our driver, as always,
2: behind the panel, making it sound all proper like, Robbo, how's the clutch feel today, mate? Mate, the clutch is uh, feeling really good, actually. We're an express to all things mojo today. Good. And our automated studio assistant, uh, a world first, Lola. Hello, Lola.
0: Hello,
3: boys. AP, are you present?
2: Yeah, I'm over here. I'm
3: inside the cake.
2: (laughs) No, he didn't ask if you are a present. He said, are you present? I thought you said present.
3: (laughs) All right, let's go. I've got a uh, quick... This is a good one. A quick pop quiz... Hot shot. The Mojo Radio Show. of oh, quiz, hot shot. This is a cracker. Who said this? I wouldn't say that I'm the greatest guitarist ever. I'd probably say that I'm the greatest guitarist
2: sitting in this chair. Uh, I don't know. I'm going to guess. Jimi Hendrix?
3: Oh, you are kidding me.
2: <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, I've actually heard that one before. Isn't that a good quote, though? It's a fantastic quote. See, I think the, the challenge today
3: is. Discipline and prioritising. And when I read that quote, it made me think of fashion icon, Karl Lagerfeld, who is a gone but not forgotten, who said, never compete, never compare. But you hear Jimmy and how he played and what he did and he never competed with anybody else. And I think if we're in business or doing a podcast, it doesn't matter what you do, but we shouldn't compete with others. We should compete with ourselves and not say, well, are we the best compared to somebody else? But are we the best in this studio? you we the best we can do? And I don't know. I just think that it's probably one of the things that social media has brought into the world where we're constantly living in other people's worlds and we're constantly comparing ourselves or competing with somebody else to show the world our best self. But we're not actually not just holding ourselves to a standard. And I read that and I thought, you know, that is just – a cracking quote to put on your screensaver <laughs> that when you start to go off track and you're not focused on what matters and you're not competing with yourself and your view is tainted by those around you, just go back and um, because we're listening to Jimmy but we're not hearing Jimmy, you know what movie oh. that's from?
2: Uh, no. Lola, can you play that?
0: Playing that now.
2: Hey, what is this?
0: Jimmy Henderson. No, I know who it is, but why are you playing Jimmy? Well, because I like to listen to him. Oh, you like to listen? That's what the problem is. Y'all listen. Well, what am I supposed to do? Eat it? <laughs> no, no, no. You're supposed to hear it. Hey, I just said I like to listen to it, right? No, 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 no. There's a difference between hearing and listening. See, white people, y'all can't hear Jimmy. You listen.
2: The Mojo Radio Show.
3: Our guest this week is Art Markman, and he is a professor of psychology at the University of Texas in Austin. And in that sentence... Professor and psychology makes us sound awfully smarter, but Texas (laughs) and Austin. Oh, mate, does it get any better than that?
2: No, yeah, you're there already.
3: Art writes for the Harvard Business Review, and he's written a great number of books. Most recently, his book is Brain Briefs, which focuses on how do we use science, the science of motivation to change our behaviours at work or at home? Now, what's really curious about this guy is he's a muso and he loves ska music. Were you ever into ska? No, I wasn't a big ska boy. No, you were though, weren't you? Being from Austin, Texas, he also loves his country. And uh, I'm going to question him to find out whether he loves a good, a big old Texas barbecue. Oh, he doesn't. He's a professor. (laughs) He's super smart and I think all those things make him perfect for our little radio program. So Art, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Oh, it's great to be here. I've got a lot to cover with you and before we start, put us in the picture. When somebody says to Art, what do you do? How do you like to reply?
1: Uh, Well, you know, I guess it depends on the context, but I I am a, I mean, I'm a professor here at the University of Texas. Uh, I'm a psychologist. I study the way people think. I try to help people understand more about the way that they think. So I do a lot of outward facing stuff. Uh, um, and I'm also, I'm the director of the IC squared Institute. So I, I help the university study innovation and entrepreneurship. So, and in my copious <laughs> spare time, I put the stocks. So, you know, <laughs> I was going to say, do you have any spare time in amongst all that? <laughs> I have know, it's a couple of minutes a day. It's amazing what you can do in even five minutes, right?
3: That's there true. You know. Now, I heard you say that you essentially get paid to be confused. Now, some could take that as a negative, but it's actually empowering. How does that approach work for you as a professor?
1: Well, you know, I think that that I'm lucky enough to be able to spend time thinking about things where we don't know the answer to a particular question yet. and And sometimes not only don't we know the answer, we're not even quite sure how to get there from here. And- and so unlike many kinds of things, you know, if you're on the phone with customer service from your mobile phone provider, you want an answer now. Uh, lucky enough to be in a situation where the kinds of questions that we ask, we have the time and space to actually contemplate them for a while. And so you have to make yourself comfortable with not knowing the answer for a long period of time.
3: Is that something that people struggle with today? Art, uh, because it just seems like we have everything at our fingertips, the pace of life, expectations, the drive. It, it, it just seems like people don't appreciate the opportunity to sit and think anymore. Do you do you find that?
1: Well, I, I certainly think that, that there's very little reward for it in most situations. I mean, let's face it, IMDb has ruined tons of conversations about which actors starred in which film. Uh, so we we can't even... We can't even have that conversation anymore, let alone give ourselves weeks or months to ponder uh, a particular question. So, so we really feel like we we, like we, we got to go now. And, and I think that there's there are a lot of hard problems that need to be solved in this world, and they're not going to be solved now. They're going to be solved by, by giving ourselves some time to think about it and, and giving ourselves some time to, to learn about things that aren't obviously relevant to whatever it is we're studying at the moment.
3: Well, that's gold. That's gold. gold. One of the things you said, which, which I really liked, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a good line to contemplate, you said we train people to think for a living, but they have no idea of how their own mind works. What's the thing we probably don't know, but we should know about our own minds?
1: You know, there's a, there's a few things. One of them is that we understand the world less well than we think we do. So one of my, one of my favorite phenomena is, was, was uncovered first by, uh, by Frank Kyle, the psychologist, and one of his, uh, his students, Leonid Rosenblatt, and, and they, they coined this term, the illusion of explanatory depth, which is this belief that we understand the way the world works better than we actually do. And, and this turns out to be really important because the, this, this ability to understand the way things work, to, to, to answer the question why, to use what psychologists call causal knowledge, that's the stuff that allows us to answer a question in a new way rather than just executing a procedure. And so if you don't even know what you don't know, then you, you are missing knowledge that would allow you to manipulate the world and you don't even know you're supposed to look for it and and that's that's probably the single biggest thing that if people understood better they would spend more time explaining things back to themselves to make sure that they actually understand what they think they understand and and by improving the quality of their knowledge they would they would do a great a much better job of of being able to solve complex problems and then the other thing really quickly is I think we, we don't realize that the single biggest uh, benefit, the single biggest factor that improves creativity is, is taking whatever problem you're trying to solve, whatever issue you're grappling with, and just describing it in lots of different ways. Because really, when you get to the point of solving a problem, all you have left is the ability to be reminded of something you know. And the only way to be reminded of something different when you're thinking of one thing is to is is to ask the question in a different way. And I think if if people if people learn those two things, they get much better at being creative problem solvers. Gold. gold, Texas gold, brother, gold,
3: Texas gold. <laughs> out of the gates, uh, three minutes into it, he's just dragged out some Texas gold.
1: Absolutely fantastic.
3: <laughs> you got no idea what we're talking about. Uh, It's interesting. I, I heard a guy recently, he said to me that he worked for a boss and his boss would set him a task. He would come back to his boss and his boss would challenge him to say, convince me that you're convinced. And I thought that was really interesting from whether it's a set of values within an organization or somebody setting about their own purpose or somebody setting down something they want to achieve into the future is before you do any of that, convince me that you're convinced. And that sounds like a version of what you're saying is explain things back to themselves. Do we almost have to convince ourselves we're convinced before we go and convince somebody else we're convinced?
1: I think it's a great idea to do that because if you don't try to convince yourself first, you may discover in the moment that you're actually not sure why you believe what you believe. And, and, Mm. and that's a, you know, where you, where we uncover that illusion of explanatory depth is in that moment when somebody says, well, okay, why? And you start to give the explanation about a third of the way in, you realize there's nothing there. Mm. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's like your, your explanations that, that little set of Russian, you know, dolls that you have to open up and, and you, you open one up and you realize it's empty after that.
2: You know what that was, Gary, that was a really convincing answer. (laughs)
1: Russian
3: dolls. (laughs) Uh, You you spend a lot of time doing behavioural stuff and there will be none of us in the studio or listening that don't have behaviours that we want to change. And we know just from pure statistics across the world that we have all adopted a lot of behaviours that are not working for us with your experience and your study, what's the psychology behind changing a behavior which is not helping us?
1: The first thing that you have to do is to recognize that your your mind wants to help you act and not to help you stop acting. And so one of the biggest problems we have is a lot of times when we look at the behaviors we have that get us into trouble, we think, well, I just got to stop doing that. And and the, the problem is that, that your motivational system engages and says, do this thing. And so you get ready to do that thing. And, and there you have, you have a brain, a set of brain mechanisms that are these inhibitory systems. I sometimes call them the stop system that involve a little bit of brain material above your eyes that try to stop you from doing something when you're, you're starting off on the road to do the wrong thing. And, and it turns out that that inhibitory, that stop system is really fallible. It, it, it breaks down when you're stressed. It breaks down if you've overindulged in drugs and alcohol. It, it breaks down if you've spent way too much time trying to control your own behavior. And so one of the things that you need to do is to recognize right up front, if you're going to make a change in your own behavior, the very first thing you need to do is to focus on what actions am I going to take instead Rather than I got to stop doing this, because if you just ride the brakes all the time, those brakes will fail, and you'll be right back where you were to begin with. And that's probably the single biggest thing anyone can do to to, to help them to help themselves change. I mean, there's a lot more beyond that, but that's that's probably the, the 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 biggest thing that you can do to start.
3: And that's where you talk about framing goals around go
1: and not stop, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Yeah. because and, and because if you're trying to develop new habits, you can only develop a habit to do something. You can't develop a habit not to do something because you're constantly not doing stuff. You don't want your brain learning that.
3: And you said make desirable behaviors easy and undesirable behaviors hard. Can you just run that for us and maybe give us a real life example in the home or the office of how we would start to execute that?
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, we are, we're lazy creatures. We, we like to do what's easy to do in our environment. And so uh, if there's a behavior you don't want to perform anymore, one of the, one, an easy thing you can do to help yourself stop doing that is to make it really difficult to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Uh, lost a lot of weight. And the reason, one of the reasons I had to lose weight was because I had a love affair with a single serving carton of ice cream. Uh, you know it yeah it's that it's that pint certainly
3: one of the members of our studio audience here does (laughs) hey (laughs) they haven't made a
2: tim tam ice cream yet
1: yet and so so i I, one of the one of the discoveries i like to share with people uh that 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 i find to be really helpful is it turns out you can't eat an ice cream that isn't in your freezer so (laughs) uh, you know so 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 at 10 o'clock at night when you're tempted to sit down and have that ice cream and it's just not there you you you're unlikely it's not impossible but you're unlikely to you know to to hop in the car and drive to a store and, and buy the ice cream and so you've survived another night so so the the trick is to is is to make it difficult to do the wrong thing
2: although you could always eat the polywaffle instead <laughs>
1: Well, you may have to clear a bunch of things out of the house.
2: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Well, that's right. And it gets on to the next part of it. We had a a guest in our first season on the show, actually, which is going back a number of seasons ago, Art. His name was Dan Gregory. He runs a, a company in Australia called the Impossible Institute. And one of the lines he used, which I thought was quite powerful, which reinforces, I think, what you're saying, he said, design beats discipline. He said, we are struggling with discipline. You're talking about designing in such a way that we can't fail, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and, and what I would say is, you know, the way I frame this, and you know, I, a lot of this comes out of the, the, the book Smart Change, is you have a suite of tools at your disposal, and and the trick to behavior change is to use all of them. So frame those goals in the right way. Focus on actions you're going to take rather than you're not going to take. That's one. Uh, you know, manage that environment so that the so that desirable behaviors are easy, undesirable behaviors hard. That's another one you know, surround yourself with people who will nag you to do the right thing uh, and, and also people who engage in really good behaviours so that you're tempted to do what they do. You know, those, these are all things that you can do that, that will that will keep you on the path that, that you've decided you want to be on.
3: Is this a version of focusing on the process, not the outcome? Uh, because it seems to be, I've heard it a few times mentioned and you seem like this is getting into actually the design of it removing the temptation, making it easier to succeed. Is that part of this focus of process, not outcome?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You, you want to be sure that you are engaging in a set of daily behaviors whose accumulated impact leads to whatever the desired outcome is. And, and the beauty of a process is if you're focused on the process and not the outcome, you just keep doing the process. And so there's never a point at which you say, well, I've reached the outcome. I can stop doing this, you know, which is what gets people into trouble. You know, it's, it's, so the difference between someone who writes one book uh, and someone who writes many is the person who writes one book is focused on the outcome. And they get to the end and they're like, ah, oh, I'm done. I'm never doing that again. And the person who writes a bunch of books writes. And as a side effect, a book sometimes pops out.
3: Gee, that's, that in itself is very interesting art uh, because that's almost getting back to the alter ego uh, that Todd mm. Herman talks about in his book, Alter Ego, is that how do you see yourself? Do mm-hmm. you see yourself as a writer or do you see yourself as a guy who's written a book?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and labels are so powerful in general because, because once you give yourself a label and if you're willing to live that label, you, you you then you then believe you have the essence of that thing. You know, so that's the difference between, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, the writer versus someone who writes. I've often said you can you can use this whole principle of whether you have the essence or not as an insult. Right. So you say to somebody, so, so is John a painter? And you say somewhat dismissively, well, he paints you know, and, and what, what, you know, why, why would that be uh, an insult? Well, because painter carries with it this idea of he's the, he's got the essence of painter. And, 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 you know, so it's more than just, engaging in the action it's it's part of who you are in some fundamental sense and so you you've got to keep doing it because because that otherwise you wouldn't be being true to yourself that's
3: gold that is, that is willie nelson gold right there i'm talking <laughs> austin, <laughs> austin <laughs> texas
2: that's get an down. insult willie
1: no no well, that's really oh, that's, that's that's bad. great isn't it willie willie is fantastic it's, we love it's, willie it's, uh, excuse excuse
3: my friend of the corner here and
2: the road again <laughs> I just can't wait to get <laughs> I'll, on I'll the road I'll just continue
3: again. this story with Art. We, we, Art and I, we're simpatico. We get this. There's a connection here, which we'll get to in a second. <laughs> now, if we are talking, but he, here's the thing, Art. It seems like people, we all hear a podcast, we get vibed up, we go away for a week or two weeks, we're in the zone, in our lane, it's all happening. The issue seems to be that we can't keep it going, we can't sustain change, we can't make sustainable change, which is ongoing, which is something you just mentioned. Is there a cognitive trigger that we can be aware of or implement to help us sustain
1: this change in behaviour? Well, I think there's two things to bear in mind. First is, as you're casting about for the, for the things that you can do that will help you to achieve the outcome you want, try to find something you actually enjoy. You know, there, there's, there's a lot of data now on, you know, questions like what people go to the gym most often. And it turns out the people who go to the gym most often like going to the gym. So, so, so if you can find a way to achieve some outcome you want and actually have some joy as a part of that, do that. You know, don't, you know, achieving long-term goals doesn't have to be a, a joyless affair, you know, I, I, I do the work I do and I work hard at it because I like it. I like coming into work and doing this stuff. And, and I think that, that, that that's, that's one piece, but I think that, that to the extent you have to convince yourself to do something you don't want to do. Um, I, I think one of the great things you can do is to try and turn that into a social part of your life, you, you know, do these behaviors with other people. You know get other people to help you mm, uh, mm. or have just have other people hold you accountable i 've often pointed out to people that that most of the of the things that we 've done in our lives that we 're not particularly proud of were not generally done in broad daylight in front of lots of people
3: If we talk about the journey for sustainable change uh, I, I I heard and, and read a book recently by david goggins' the Former Navy SEAL and Special Ops and Ranger, and an incredible book called "You Can't Hurt uh, Can't Hurt Me." And mm-hmm. one of the things he talked about in that book, which I'd be really curious to put some cognitive um, thought behind, is he said we should plan for what might go wrong. So we have this, we have this, we've set an outcome that we want to achieve. We're now focused on the process, and he said part of the process is being able to visualise what might go wrong so that you can prepare yourself knowing it's probably going to happen, may happen, may not happen. But if it does, I've got this and it's all part of the process to get me to where I want to go to. In your study and the work you're doing, do you you see that as a cognitive thing we can use to
1: sustain change? So again, if I I talk about the the kind of five kinds of tools that we can that we can use to be ready to, to change effectively. One of them is, is one that I call managed temptations. And one of the aspects of that means it, it requires being really aware up front of what the obstacles are going to be and preparing for those as much as possible in advance. Um, if, you have to, if you have to deal with a temptation when it happens, uh, there's a possibility you're going to give into it. But if you're prepared for those beforehand then you've you've already got something that you can execute you know i tell people who are trying to lose weight uh you know you come upon the the dreaded uh lunch buffet after a long business meeting you know the the the, so so the so the morning meeting goes long and now you're starving and suddenly there's all this delicious food piled up um you should have a plan for that before rather than just waiting to figure out what to do uh in that moment, I, I so I, I tell everybody while everybody else is getting online, uh, grab grab a table uh, so you get a seat first. And now you're gonna be last online. Then go to the dessert cart, not not for the dessert, but for the small plates they put there. Uh, and then get to the end of the line, and 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 now by the time you get to the front of the line, all the good stuff's been picked over, and and now you you, you put a small amount of picked over food on your uh, on your plate. You eat and you have survived another buffet. But, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm a survivor of many. (laughs) Uh, And, and, and the, but the, but the trick is, you know, whatever you decide to do to be thinking in advance, well, what are some of the things that are going to go wrong in my world? Mm. And, and then how, how can I make sure that they don't go wrong, that they don't derail my, my attempts to change?
2: Good old lunch buffet, Gary, your biggest beef about those sort of meetings, isn't it? The crap beef. they put on the table, Ooh,
3: beef. <laughs> You're speaking my language, beef. Mm. Art, I've heard you talk, and this is this is a curious one for me. I've heard you talk about the fact there can be a sense of shame or guilt that accompanies goal setting. Where, where does that sit? How, how does that become a hindrance?
1: Well, you know, it's 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 interesting. I mean, so so guilt and shame are both emotions that are related to uh to the um to whether you achieved a particular goal. And, and there's slightly different emotions. So guilt is an outward facing emotion. I feel guilty when, when I've done something wrong and, 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 and I was responsible to someone else for it. Uh, whereas shame is an inward facing thing. I feel bad about myself because of the failure to achieve a goal. And, you know, the, the data on this suggests that shame is, is almost never helpful in any way, um, Because because if you begin to feel bad about yourself as a result of of failing to achieve a goal, then you begin to think, well, I'm just not the kind of person who can do this. And then you stop trying. Um, Guilt can sometimes actually be useful in the sense that it may provide you with with some energy to, to avoid temptations or to make reparations for something bad that you did because you feel like, well, I, I owe someone else because of the, the mistake that I made or, or the bad thing that I did. So, but, but if you find yourself in a situation where you're really feeling shame, one of the things that's important to do is, is, is to really remind yourself that, that behavior change is fundamentally two steps forward and one step back. And, mm-hmm. and the, real difference between the people who succeed and fail at their long-term goals is what they do on the day after they take a step back. You know, if that step back becomes many steps back, then uh, that, that makes it hard to overcome. But if, if you learn from each of the, of the bad days you have and turn those into fuel to do better and, and lessons to do better, then you, you succeed in the long run.
3: God, this is good, this is good, uh, this is good stuff. It's, if I can take a little off-ramp, which I think will come back onto this highway, but upward social comparison. And mm-hmm. I want to see whether this all feeds into the same highway here. Uh, you, the, the, where I came across your work, and I, and I actually find, I think your writing's terrific. I really enjoy the way you, you write and express concepts that are obviously sit in psychology, but, show themselves in our real world. And you wrote a blog, which is where I came across your work called Why Everyone Else Seems to Have More Money Than You. And in that story, you talked about how we compare ourselves to someone else who looks to be better off than us. And it's called Upward Social Comparison. The question I've got is because of social media, is that becoming more and more an epidemic where it's easier for us to compare ourselves socially through social media with everybody else? And if it is, is that having a real effect on our happiness, our fulfillment, and even our well-being?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes and yes. So um, the thing about social media is we get this, this constant view into other people's lives which, which, and, and, and a lot of other people's lives, which, which means two things. One, that, uh, that you're, you're constantly being given opportunities to make comparisons, but, but more important than that Even if everyone was representing themselves on social media uh, in a a truthful way, which we know they're not, um, but even if they were, uh, you'd be guaranteed the more people you come across to find people who are better off than you are. And then on top of that, everyone's curating themselves, their, their their presentation to 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 make themselves the best possible version of who they are, and so we're just we're just surrounded by opportunities to look at people who are better off than we are in some way, whether it's financially or in their career stage or they their family just looks like better people, and so. Uh, <laughs> Or all of the above, and so and so in that situation, you just you're giving yourselves a, a lot of opportunities to feel bad about where you are in life.
3: So that leads on to the next question. So if I look at somebody who has that bigger house or has whatever, I should feel dissatisfied. And right. then you said that dissatisfaction dissatisfaction is actually a good thing because it should give you the energy to act. Wanting something creates motivation. But then you said dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction? (laughs)
2: Dissatisfaction.
3: Dissatisfaction alone can be frustrating. My question is what else do we need along with dissatisfaction? (laughs) dissatisfaction <laughs> more coffee for mr burt whistle
2: please i don't
0: make coffee i
2: just put my teeth back in again what else do we need along with dissatisfaction this man well, is an author
1: <laughs> <laughs> i speak good proper english well as long as he's not doing his own audio book it's fine uh <laughs> robo does that for me the gap between present and future So that gap could be between your present and your desired future. It could be the gap between you and somebody you're you're perceiving. That creates dissatisfaction. Then there's the question of, is there a bridge across that gap? Do you see some path that would enable you to make progress to to achieve whatever it is that you don't yet have? And so Mm. if there's a bridgeable gap, so you look at the difference between you and somebody else and think, I know how to get there. I just have to work at it. Then it's motivating. If you look at somebody else, though, and the and the gap is too big, you see no way that you would ever be able to achieve what they've achieved, then you see, you're frustrated because you see the gap, but you're not really motivated to act because you don't see anything you could do that would make a difference. Do you
3: personally carry regrets? Uh, do you think regrets are positive?
1: Uh, so I, I think the potential for regret is positive. Um, the, the research on regret is really beautiful because it's this great example of what happens when you reframe the question you're asking. So early on, a lot of the research on regret got done with college students who are the fruit flies of psychology research. They're cheap and plentifully available on college campuses. <laughs> and. And when you ask college students, what do you regret? It's almost universally s- stupid stuff they did. So they regret, you know, getting drunk and throwing up, or they regret crashing a car or whatever it is. And, and, and so most of the regrets are, are focused on bad actions. But, but uh, Tom Gilovich and his colleagues did some great research on regret where they went into old age homes. So they said, well, let's, let's not ask college students, let's ask old people what they regret. And when you ask somebody, you know, nearing the end of their lives, so somebody say in their 80s or 90s, you say, "Well, what do you regret?" It's almost exclusively stuff they didn't do. So so it's it's the it's the it's the roads not taken. And and what I what I like about that research is it can actually be used as a motivational tool because you can you can then take advantage of your mental ability to time travel. Project yourself to the end of your life and look back and say, is there anything I haven't done that I regret not having done? And and if so, while I still have a chance, maybe it's time to go do it. And 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 I, and that actually so that actually had a profound effect on my life because I I played that game when I read about this research and realized that one of the things that I would regret never having done was that I had never learned to play the saxophone. Uh, and and uh, and so the following week I went out and to a music store and said, I want to, I want to buy a saxophone. They said, great. Do you play? I said, no. They said, then you don't want a saxophone. You want a saxophone teacher. And, uh, <laughs> and I went, Oh, so I, I, they, they recommended a teacher and then he, he actually, uh, helped me get it, get the right saxophone. And, uh, and, and I, and, and that started a journey that's now, gosh, 17 years ago that, that, that started a journey that, that, that culminated with my, Uh, learning to play the sax.
3: It's interesting. You just talked about people in their twilight years, people at the end of their time. As we get older, do we talk ourselves into cognitive decline art? Because you hear people say, oh, I'm getting old. Oh, it's a gray moment. Oh, at this age, you'd expect that from me. I can't keep up anymore. I can't do it. Do we talk ourselves into cognitive decline? Is there research and science behind that?
1: Yeah, yeah, there is, and it's, it's, it's really too bad. And so, so there's two components to that. First of all, as you get older, uh, if you worry about cognitive decline, it impairs your cognitive performance because stress mm-hmm. decreases what's called your working memory capacity, which is the amount of information you can hold in mind at any given moment. And so if you worry that you're not as sharp as you used to be, then that worry Makes you less sharp than you used to be. So there's a little bit of a self fulfilling prophecy there. Um, and I like to point out to people this is that that we've been forgetting stuff our, our whole lives, you know. And and you know when my kids were were younger, you know, my kids are all out of the house now, thankfully. But when they when they were younger, you know, I would say, did you did you take out the trash? And they'd go, Oh, I totally forgot. You know, <laughs> it's Based on that one. You know, and and so. So they they were forgetting stuff, and and as I like to point out, not not one time did any of them ever say I, I just had a senior in high school moment, mm. you know. So so it's 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 they're not you know they're not blaming it on their life stage. You know, you turn fifty and you forget the name of some obscure actor, and now you think it's the sign of the impending cognitive apocalypse. So you know we gotta we, we gotta just relax a little bit, and then on top of that, because you believe. That that you're slowing down or you're not as sharp. You don't try new stuff. So, you know, I tell people, yeah, I took them with the saxophone in my mid-30s. And people, people look at me like, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> that you can learn an instrument up through like your junior year in high school, after which you're stuck with whatever instruments you learn to play. Mm as as opposed to waking up one day and thinking gosh I'd like to learn to play an instrument and then just going and doing it there, there's there's nothing to stop you from from that or learning to paint or whatever you want to do you can you you know we but we stop ourselves we just think well people my age don't do that and and the answer to that is who cares
3: what's the science and or research on slowing time down for us, Art, because it's one of the things you hear a lot, which I think is quite sad. It's, mm. oh, gee, I can't believe it's March. Oh, I can't believe it's already the middle of the year. Oh, I can't believe it's Christmas. Or it just seems like it was Easter yesterday. Is there something we can think about, implement, challenge, that can slow down how quickly time is going in people's minds?
1: Uh, there's a little you can do. But you can't do it completely. Because one of the things that happens is landmarks in your life compress time because they make you feel mentally nearer to that same time in the past. So when you get to the holidays, for example, you know, if there's a typical Christmas celebration that you're a part of, for example, then then if you're surrounded by, you know, all of the elements of that celebration that calls to mind who you were in all of these other years when you were celebrating the same thing, and so now suddenly you're mentally close to not just where you are right now, but where you were 20 years ago at the same, you know, in the same situation. And so, the older you get, the the more years there are that you get to compress together. And there's not a heck of a lot you can do about that, and that can make you feel like, gosh, it wasn't it wasn't I just 20. Uh, but but at the same time, there are other things you can do to at least make the years that you live feel a little longer. <clears throat> and one of the most important things you can do is to do new stuff. Because, because when you do anything new, your brain wants to learn that because it thinks, well, this is new. I might need this later. And so the more that you try new things, visit new places, take up new hobbies, interact with new people, have new conversations, the more of that you do, the more that your memory is filled with stuff that happened recently. But if you go to work on the same route every day, do the same things, spend your time with the same people and eat the same foods, your brain doesn't really feel the need to learn a whole bunch of stuff because you're just doing what you did last time. And now when you look back over a period of time, you think, well, nothing happened. So the last time I can remember anything interesting happening was five months ago. I can't believe how much time has flown.
3: If I'm looking back in your words, a lot of people today talk about gratitude and we had mm. Marie Gromberg, who's a mountain climber, who said that gratitude is a superhighway to happiness. What's the sweet spot between gratitude and dissatisfaction?
1: A lot of it depends on what you, what you want in the moment and, and what, you're hope, what you're hoping to accomplish. So dissatisfaction is the fuel to move forward. And in the moment, you may be dissatisfied with your current state um, but, but you may actually still be happy if you feel like you're making progress towards that. So dissatisfaction can be motivational and can, be, and can create um, enjoyment of the process. What, what, what gratitude is good for are those days when you look at the world and the world is, is black or gray or just miserable for you. And you just think, I, I'm just not in a good place. And on those days, um, that sort of, of just, you know, whether it's, it's you know, sadness or, or depression or anxiety, those, those days it can be hard to motivate yourself because you feel like you, you, you don't feel good about yourself. And in those moments, gratitude is, is very powerful because what gratitude does is to remind you that there are people out there who care about you. And who were willing to do things so that your life could be better and 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 that that's the stuff that gets us out of bed on the bad days mm. and and the thing about is not every day is a good day and and so you need strategies for taking advantage of the good days, but you also need strategies for doing the best you can on the bad ones
3: you've said that the bad days actually can be an advantage to us. As well, Art, because I think something you said was successful people identify all the flaws in what they Mm -hmm. just did because you can't fix an area that you're not aware of. And, In saying that, and I think that I think this fits back with gratitude, but it, it sounds like that needs a certain sense of humility—that you have to be humble enough to know that you have got areas to improve upon, or this went pear-shaped. What, what is the psychology behind that? Where does humility fit into this whole picture?
1: Yeah. Well, it's it, partly it's 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 humility, and it's also it's also a mindset. It's 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 a recognition that your self worth doesn't need to be measured by what you're able to accomplish right now. You know, you can, I, I look, I, I, you know, if you do a good thing, I, I certainly recommend celebrating that. I'm a big fan of celebrating college graduations or, or promotions or somebody publishes a paper or a book by all means party on, but, but don't <laughs> get focused on just the achievement, you know, it, and because, because you know there there are always going to be things that you don't know how to do there are always going to be people who know how to do things that you don't and and so if you treat life as as a as a game of let me let me learn how to do the next thing i don't know how to do then you you end up leading a satisfying life because you're constantly improving at the things you do and you can live your life in in awe and and in appreciation of those people who can do things you can't, because it's it you can now realize those people who do things you don't know how to do, they are they are a, a model for you, and not a sign that you're worthless. But but I think there's a lot of people out there who are so focused on on just on accomplishment and just on what they're able to do today, that they view the people. Who are more accomplished, or who can do more things that they than they can, as a as a threat. And uh, and and then you you know then then you you live your life in constant fear that you're going to discover somebody who's just better than you are at everything, as opposed to better than you are at everything today, but tomorrow's another day.
3: Elon Musk. Was written up in Ashley Vance's book as being someone who read very, very widely. Like he, he read about topics that were completely unrelated to his interests, and mm-hmm. that's something that I. It's, it's, it, it, it is fascinating how often you read that now about the people who are making real change and or mm. doing something that's different or uh, successful. They read widely. Then I, on the other hand, I hear people say no you should pick a topic that you want to be excellent at and deep dive and study that topic and the fringes of that topic. Where do you sit as a psychologist on, is it reading widely? Do you go deep on one thing or the fringes? Like, do you have an opinion
1: on that? I I do. Uh, I think I have an opinion on everything, but I particularly have an opinion on this. And but 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 my opinion is 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 the answer what I what I consider to be the answer to every hard question in psychology, which is it depends. But what it depends on is what you're trying to accomplish exactly. So if if you are operating in a fairly well understood domain and your goal is to really be the best at it, then you should do that thing over and over and over and over and over again. So You know, if you want to play chess, you got to study an awful lot of chess. And if, you know, it's a pretty well understood domain. And frankly, if you want to be a concert classical pianist or or musician, man, you got to you got to just study that over and over and over again. And, you know, in that area. But but if your goal is to do things to to find solutions to problems that no one has ever come up with before. You know, so, so, you know, the, the Elon Musk is, you know, his, his, his interest is in trying to do things that people haven't done yet. And, and, and when that's your interest, then it turns out it's useful to read really widely because a lot of times the, the, the germ to the solution of the problem that you're trying to solve is likely to come from some far flung area that no one has bothered to juxtapose yet. And the day that you put those two areas together, you realize that there's an insight that puts you on the path to a solution. And and the only way that that's going to happen is if you've put a whole bunch of stuff in your head, most of which you had no idea was going to be useful until after it turned out to be useful. If we put that stuff
3: in our head and then... I mean, I think it's, it's uh, ri- widely been suggested that sleep embeds the learnings of the day. So it's something you've talked about, that we we learn something, we sleep on it, it helps embed it. The other thing I've heard you talk about, which I haven't heard talked about before, is that sleep also helps us deal with things that haven't gone the way that we would like to have them to go on. So things that haven't gone well, when you sleep on it, it helps us come to grips with it, I suspect. But what's the, the cognitive science on that, that sleeping on something that hasn't gone well helps us?
1: Yeah. So the, the thing about brains is we don't store all of the information that relates to a particular memory in the same place in the brain. It's, it's actually distributed across the brain. And when we recall something, part of what we're doing is, is recreating the pattern of activity that, that uh, allows us to recreate the, the, the memory from, from the past. And the reason that this is important is because one of the things that sleep seems to do is to begin to decouple the, the, the brain centers that are associated with emotional responses from some of those memories. And so the, what, what sleep allows you to do is you can now think back to some bad thing that happened, but as you know, as you've had nights to sleep, you're no longer uh, recreating the emotional response that came with it, which then allows you to look a little bit more dispassionately at something that went wrong. You know, that, that's why, you know, I, I, I talked to, Colleagues of mine, you know, we 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 write scientific papers and submit them to journals, and invariably there's a reviewer. It's usually reviewer two for some reason, who uh, hates the paper, and they say all kinds of nasty things about it. and And when you first get the review, you're you're angry because you poured your heart into this work, and then this person in one page dissed the whole thing, and and so for a day or two you can't even think about it. You're so angry. Um, So I encourage people, read the reviews, put them down, take a nap, you know, and walk from it for a couple of days and then go back to it. Because after a couple of days, that emotional response has died down. And now you can begin to actually... Look at it a little bit more carefully and realize: well, reviewer two's a jerk, but maybe not as big a jerk as I thought that he or she was. Uh, you know, when I first read this, and actually, there's a couple of points there, and I think here's some stuff I need to fix. So, so you know, there's there's value in in being able to decouple that emotional response.
3: That is broken spoke gold. You know what I'm talking about, Art? Don't you? Broken spoke. You know the honky tonk? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well done. <laughs> well done. Yeah, we did. We Dude, that's that's the two step right there.
3: That's, uh, yes, uh, done that. Uh, just two two final things before I let you go because I'm mindful of of your time, Art. But what's the the newest, coolest discovery in psychology that you are pondering, have a hunch about, or are confused about, but excited about?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's interesting. I mean, right now, I think one of the things that I'm fascinated by is is actually what's going on in 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 the field, you know, with respect to what's called replication. So you know, there's there's been this discussion of what's called the replication crisis, you know, and 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 the recognition that that um, for a variety of reasons, some number of the studies that got done in the past um, were probably shoddily done in one way or another, and and that we have to wait to see which ones of those are going to hold up, and it what what I, the reason I'm fascinated by that is because for for years, even before this came to light, I would tell people that whenever I try to make a recommendation to somebody about some aspect of psychology that they ought to pay attention to if they're going to live their lives differently, I've always told them the research that they use ought to be at least fifteen years old. and 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 I, I believe that even more firmly now, that that you know a new finding comes out, it's tantalizing, it's exciting. But but if you're gonna if you're gonna actually change the way you do things, then let the field sort itself out a little bit. And that to me is just something that I've been I've been paying a lot of attention to how this is going and talking with various mm-hmm. colleagues about that. And and you know so I'm I'm, I, I, you know, I'm I'm interested to see how the methods that we use change uh, as a result of the recognition that that some number of studies people do are are uh, you know really really up to the right standards.
3: Just one final question, probably the big question of the whole interview. The time you spent with us is. I know you play sax. You love jazz and Scar. We've never had somebody on the show ever in six seasons who was into Scar. Who Who's the Scar band that's had the biggest influence on you?
1: So um, you know, I, I'm going to answer that question. It's, it actually goes to to both to 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 the two ends of of the the the, the ska genre. Um, so so one of the early ska bands out of Jamaica was The Scatolites. and uh, you know they they just really great instrumentals largely a little bit of vocal in there but but a, largely these instrumentals where they play these beautiful tunes sometimes they were written sometimes they would take a a song like the themes of the guns from Navarone and you know and then just <laughs> solo out of that, it's just beautiful, and and I I, I really love that. And then and then about gosh, about two years ago, the band I'm in here in Austin, Phineas Gage, we actually got the chance to open for the Scatolites or for, the, for for the what the band that calls themselves the Scatolites which has one surviving member of the original group, uh, and then a bunch of younger musicians. But boy, what a, that was a terrific experience. And and so on the one hand, you know that is this, that stuff really intrigues me. But the other thing that I'm fascinated by is here in Texas. There are a lot of, of Latin ska bands. I mean, you know, bands that are that, that draw their roots from Mexico that play this really punky, dirty, beautiful, you know, a lot of great musicianship, but 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 very much on the kind of punk end of ska. That that and and we've had a chance to play with some of those bands and hear some of those bands and I love that. Because we really started out, you know, um, our band started out initially as a, as a, as a kind of a, 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 um, we were a wedding gift to somebody, somebody put a band together to play for a friend's wedding and we had so much fun. We kept playing. And so initially we were sort of in the middle playing a lot of the kind of, you know, mid eighties English ska. Are the
3: selector um, and the specials and that sort of stuff. Is that the, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. But but what happened was we started writing some of our own stuff, and and a lot more of that was really influenced by either the early kind of you know Jamaican ska or this later punkier stuff, and uh, and I just I really just I love some of these new bands, you know uh, Los Carnales and uh, Los Cortados and yeah you know, some really fun fun bands.
2: So he, here's the big question for you then, Art. If you, yeah. if you drag yourself out of bed of a morning, you're sort of you know, feeling a bit you know, a bit lapsed, <laughs> nothing's happening, the brain's not working. I can't imagine that actually with art. The coffee's <laughs> not getting you motivated. Yeah. If you're in the car or you're on the bus, what's the song you go to then to get your day cranking?
1: You know, actually, that's a, that's a really good question. Like I don't, I don't have a single go-to song. I mean, the beauty of being in Austin is unlike most people, whose, whose, whose musical taste seems to end at, at the age of 15, um, the, the, the beauty of being in Austin is I'm constantly being exposed to new artists and, and, to, and hearing new things. And so, and so it's, there's, there's, there's never been a go-to song. Um, you know, actually oddly enough, I've gone back to the future on, on, you know, lately just cause, cause like so many people, I, I went out and saw Bohemian Rhapsody. And so, you know, I've, i've you know turned back i was i'd kind of gotten not just stopped listening to queen songs and suddenly they're back and i've been enjoying that i'm sure in about three weeks i'll be tired of that but uh but you know i i just i i love hearing you know hearing hearing new new stuff um you know uh, Barry Clark Jr., who's who, who came out of Austin. You know, some of his 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 latest work has has been really fantastic.
3: Who are the uh, Mexican bands? That can you just repeat the names of those so we can get them. Up?
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, Los Los Cárnales out of Houston, they're really good, and uh, Los Carrados out of um, out of San Antonio. Uh, just, and Los Los Scarnales have a ton Los of Cárnados. S- uh, Cárnados. So ska. Yeah, or an S-K-A. S-K-A-R-N-A-L-E-S. And
2: then Curados, uh, K-U-R-A-D-O-S. I'm going to look them up. That Gary's, really, Gary's uh, going to go to the wardrobe and get out his pointy shoes and his tight yeah. white pants and you
1: got, get you going, aren't you, Gaz?
3: <laughs> oh, mate, I, I, was a, I was a rude boy from way back. You know what I'm talking about, Art? I was, uh, I was a rude boy with a pork pie hat. Uh, nice. And, I, and it was because it, it came out of that. Scar was an interesting area because it came out of the punk – then punk mm-hmm. went into kind of new wave and new wave slashed into ska. And it was that whole genre yeah. was fascinating. I was into all that. And that's why uh, hearing this new, almost new category of music coming out of Mexican, Spanish ska, that just sounds fascinating. Yeah.
1: It is. I, I love it. It's, and I love the fact that, it, that the music is evolving because to me, you know, music is a living thing and it's it, it you know it has to it has to keep growing and that's 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 really what's so fascinating about it is that it can go it, it didn't have to stop in 1988
3: Art, i honestly could talk to you for hours there is so much stuff that i haven't even gotten to yet into areas that i know is your expertise that i'm just fascinated the way you articulate uh, the way you share your learnings, put into a real-world environment where we can take learnings away. It really has been terrific, mate. I've thoroughly enjoyed hearing your thoughts, your philosophies, your experience. Where, where would people go to to la- learn more about
1: you, the work you're doing? Uh, so the easiest thing to do, I mean, I'm on, I'm on all kinds of social media, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, all that. Uh, you can find me at, at smartthinkingbook.com which uh, has links actually to all my books, including uh, I got a new one coming out in June called bring your brain to work. That'll be the, (laughs) that'd be a good idea. Copy that Robert. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. And, uh, (laughs) and I, uh, and, and, and for people who want to, you know, a very brief podcast, uh, do a show here out of Austin called two guys on your head that uh, it's seven and a half minutes. So it doesn't require a significant time commitment on anybody's part. uh, But it, uh, it's it's uh there's if, if uh, in in the u s we have a, a show on NPR that's called car talk it's two two old guys talking about seventy nine toyotas uh we're sort of like that only we're talking about the mind instead
2: mm. we could we could you and I could sort of do a hybrid of one of those shows, Gaz, we could sort of do two guys who don't bring their brains to work. <laughs> <laughs> or That'd two work. guys that are totally out of their head. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but having listened to
3: you guys, it's you and Bob, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Uh, it's certainly worthwhile looking. We'll, we'll put a link to the shows in our show notes. So they can go and expand more information about you and Bob because you guys seem to get on really, really well together. It's a good show.
1: Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, Bob is, a, is just a really wonderful human being. Uh, mm. and so it you know I've, I've only known him maybe you know 8 8 or 9 years but I feel like I've known him my whole life.
3: Well, mate this has been a real privilege. Thank you for your time. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for giving us such Texas Texas Austin gold through the show and mm. um I hope we can uh, we can keep in touch
1: with you mate. Uh, absolutely. It was a pleasure talking with both of you and uh, look forward to having a chance to do it again. And if you make it down to Austin, Texas, let me know. Oh, you got it. <laughs> I was going to
2: say don't tell Gary that. He'll be <laughs> knocking on your door tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> we'll <laughs> I would think of
3: nothing better than having a, a, a brew with you at the Broken Spoke with some uh, some great music, bit of honky tonk, bit of two step. It's funny that you go to,
2: you go to coffee when you talk about Texas. I go to steak for some reason.
3: I, I don't know. <laughs>
2: All of a sudden, I've got a pang for some you know some oh. nice T-bone or something.
3: Okay, let, let me ask you this, Art. Yeah, is Sam's Barbecue
1: still there in Austin? Uh, it is, but but the big the you know of course the big place now is Franklin's, where people wait for you know 10 hours the only person in the history of Franklin ever to cut the line was uh was barack obama <laughs> kanye west kanye west came to austin tried to cut the line they didn't let him wow really
2: wow yeah. man how's that for hey, a story you're confident if you could do that right <laughs> yeah. yeah well this has been terrific thank you for your time mate oh my pleasure my pleasure have a good one This is a test of the Mojo Broadcast System. The Mojo Radio Show. You asked some really good questions in there, but you missed one. Mm. What's his favourite barbecue sauce recipe? Well, I guess that depends on whether he makes his own or just goes to Sam's and lines up. Well, surely a man of that stature makes his own.
3: Don't know. That's an assumption. Don't know. Well, we need to go back. We need to get, get him back. back on. Get him back <laughs>
2: The Mojo Radio Show.
3: Here's the close uh, for our little program
2: today. Have you been to see Bohemian Rhapsody yet? Mate, I haven't. I'll be honest. No, it's on my to do list. And yes, I am going. Uh, I'm not going to try. I am going. And here, yeah, I'll do it this week. There you go. There's my deal with you. So the reason I bring it up
3: is I love this movie and I've watched it a number of times. I've been traveling of recent times. And currently, Qantas in flight are showing it, which is awesome. So when you're a bit brain dead and you uh, just want to zoom out, I've been watching. I've watched it again. I've watched it
2: three times now. And Cheaper to see it at the movies, though, than on Qantas, surely.
3: Well, I like it because you, you put the Bose headphones on, immerse yourself, and before you know it, you're landing in Sydney an hour late. Anyway, so um, that
2: aside. Uh, <laughs> Hello to my brother, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah.
3: There's a scene which I will put the clip, which you can find on YouTube. And the clip is about You're Late, and it's Freddie and the band talking with the executive from EMI, and the executive is played by the fabulous Mike Myers. And I'll play this clip. I I think it's gold, and I just want our listeners and for us in the studio to think about, are we formulaic? Are we just doing the same thing as everybody else?
0: Lola, can you play that? I'm on it. Look. We just really need something special. More hits. Like Killer Queen, only bigger. It's not bloody widgets we're making. We can't just reproduce Killer Queen. No, we can do better. It's opera. 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 No, there seems to be an echo in here.
2: See, we don't want to repeat ourselves the same formula over and over. Formulas are a complete and
0: utter waste of time. Formulas work. Let's stick with the formulas. I like formulas. We call the album A Night at the Opera. Are you aware that no one actually likes opera? No, don't misunderstand, darling. It's a rock and roll record with the scale of opera. The pathos of Greek tragedy, the wit of Shakespeare, the unbridled joy of musical theater. It's a musical experience. Yeah. Rather than just another record. Something for everyone. Something, hmm, something that will make people feel belongs to them. Mm-hmm. We'll mix genres. We'll cross boundaries. We'll, we'll, we'll speak in bloody tongues if we want to. <laughs> No, there's no musical ghetto that could contain us. No one knows what Queen means because it doesn't mean one thing. Now, don't you reckon that just, if you
3: even think about radio stations you work with around the world, that line, we don't want to repeat ourselves, we don't want to do the same formula over and
2: over. And then the record executive goes, <laughs> I like formulas. Uh-huh. Formulas work. Yeah, yeah, that. Nah. No, I, I don't think there's a radio station in the world that doesn't run to a formula. I think they could all take a lesson from that one.
3: I guarantee somewhere in the world right now there's beat the bomb. I guarantee somewhere no. in the world there's secrets <laughs> out. I tr- I, honestly, there is, I guarantee it.
2: Yeah, Absolutely And the other thing that frustrates me And let's not get off track here But the other thing that frustrates me about radio And is a good lesson in this Is someone does come up with any, something innovative And everyone else just does it They don't change it They don't try to make it different They just do exactly the same thing
3: Hey Pete, you would have seen this I mean, how many radio stations have you worked with Where you've introed and closed Beat the bomb or secret sound, mate?
2: Uh, many times In fact, the bomb's about to go off If I don't get out of here What's that ticking noise anyway?
3: So here's the close and here's my challenge for anybody. And I don't care what industry, whether you work by yourself, if you're in business, I don't care if you play in a rugby team, I don't care if you coach a rugby team, I don't care if you're in a school PNC, I don't care if you run a farmer's markets or you're running a big Fortune 500 bank. Think about the formula that is the traditional formula for that category, that organisation. How things have always been done, and everyone's doing it because we can. We can uh, that that term where he goes, don't don't get me wrong, darling. It's it's still a rock rock r- record. And then they start talking about we can mix genres, we can cross boundaries, we can experiment. And I got to say, in this world that we live in right now. The only constant is change, and I just think that piece of piece of videos you played in our heads and to our teams over and over again, then disconnect and say, "Okay, how do we mix genres? How do we cross boundaries?" A bit like Kid Rock can play All Summer Long and play it on every musical genre there was, every every talk station, rock station, R and B. Everybody played it because he did. with that he just mixed genres, cross boundaries, he experimented. It worked. Some won't, but that's all part of the gig. And I just, this movie to me has got uh, some cracking lessons of rock for us. I've never heard you this excited about a movie, I've got to be honest. But it's gold. It's, just, <laughs> it's all you talk about. It is It is just gold that if people yeah. take that. I mean, Lola is a classic example of something that's never been done before. We created it. Lola's here with us. Hello, Lola.
0: Hey there, big boy.
3: And that's something <laughs> that doesn't exist. You know, having your own voiceover guy in the studio doesn't exist. And I think we keep challenging, and we're, we're an example, we just keep challenging ourselves every week to say, what can we do with somebody and something mm, and mm, whatever? Mm, but it's mm. fun. But mm. people who sit there and go, formulas work, I like formulas. Well, I go, well, yeah. the, the absolute growth for any organisation, any person is to get uncomfortable and to get uncomfortable you need to experiment and put yourself out there and embrace the challenge of this may fail. Embrace that. Embrace that suck. Honestly, I just think that in this day and age, those that do it can really write their own ticket and really jump ahead of their competition. That's why I'm excited by it. And the, the movie itself is a cracker. The kid who acted as Freddie, Rami Doovie, um, was brilliant. <laughs> Rami Malik. Mack, Mackic, Malik. Him. That guy. Him. Anyway, to take us out, I reckon. And if you haven't seen this, folks, it's just super brilliant. When the world came together to raise money for those in need, and Bob Geldof put on Live Aid, it's been said not by me, but by many around the world, absolute critics that Queen were the band, the band of the
2: event worldwide. Have you you've seen that whole set that Queen did, haven't you? I love Live Aid. I watch it, go back and watch it regularly, um, only because I loved the fact that you know. Um, they brought the world together in music and stuff. So, yes, I have seen the Queen set many times. And
3: I think the world have fallen back in love with Queen. And this is a song that I actually wasn't really familiar with, but I remember it, but it really wasn't on Mm. my top Mm. ten Queen songs. But having seen the movie, it's back to one of my faves. Oh, really? Can you... Lola.
0: I'm listening. Can you
3: play Queen Hammer to Fall from... Live Aid. Hey, 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 hey,
0: hey.